It was May 5th, 2008, a typical hot and muggy spring day in North Carolina, when Dennis Lovelace and his girlfriend, Brenda Pierce, were jet skiing on the Catawba River in Gaston County. Dennis would later tell a jury he and Brenda had just driven under the I-85 bridge that leads to Charlotte when they saw a blue sedan parked on a hill on an embankment along the river. It appeared as though the vehicle was mere feet, if not inches, from the water. Strange. The couple doubled back and slowly approached the riverbank. Dennis testified, I started to approach the car and I seen the doors open and I couldn't see anything because we were in the water. And so I took the jet ski up a little closer, a little closer, and a little closer. And I stood up on the jet ski about 10 feet from the bank. And then I noticed that there was a body beside the car. He said the body was lying there with feet facing the water, with her hands up. Her skirt was a little bit up too, he said, and she didn't look good. Quote, she was blue, purple looking, and didn't look good. So I turned around and hollered at Brenda and told Brenda, I said, come here, there's a body on the bank. Brenda did not believe him. She testified, he was like, Brenda, come here. And then he's like, come here. And he said, there's a body over here. And I didn't believe him. But then whenever I trolleyed closer on my jet ski, I had to stand up to actually see, actually see the body. Brenda said in court, all she could see were weeds and the woman's face. Dennis then told Brenda they needed to leave and call for help. Taking off in different directions on their jet skis, Dennis found a construction site at a nearby housing development. There, he used a construction worker's cell phone to dial 911. Meanwhile, Brenda drove back to the bait shop she and Dennis had been at earlier that day. She told the jury, When he told me to go call 911, I sat there for just a brief second, still in shock. He was like, You have to go now, Brenda. And so I immediately turned around with my jet ski and went back to Dale's boat landing. She said she tied her jet ski up and ran up to the landing. She still had her life vest on and swim trunks. Quote, I went inside and asked Ms. Sherry Robinson to please call 911 because we had just found a body at the river. Dennis and Brenda had discovered the body of a 20-year-old University of North Carolina at Charlotte student, Ira Yarmolenko. But what happened to Ira would remain a mystery, perhaps even long after investigators would make arrests in the case, perhaps even still today as I record this. This is Jillian, and you are listening to Court Junkie, episode 91. Attention, true crime lovers. The hit Reels channel show Autopsy is coming to Podcast One with all new episodes. Join Dr. Michael Hunter and those involved in the cases as they examine the autopsy reports for some of the most famous celebrity deaths of our time including Patrick Swayze, Chris Farley, and Natalie Wood. Download new episodes of Autopsy every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. About 100 yards away from where Ira's body was found, Gaston County natives 39-year-old Mark Carver and his cousin, 54-year-old Neil Cassidy, were fishing. 
In several statements to police, Mark said he and Neil arrived to the fishing spot between 10 and 11 a.m. and planned on staying until around 2 p.m. because Mark had to pick up his kids from school. He said he did not see or hear Ira. Neil also denied seeing or hearing Ira. Ira's body was discovered shortly after 1 p.m. She had three ligatures wrapped around her neck, a blue ribbon, a drawstring, and a bungee cord. The medical examiner ruled her manner of death a homicide. She had not been sexually assaulted, and nothing appeared to have been stolen. So who killed Ira, and why? It would take seven months before there would be an arrest. Mark Carver and Neil Cassidy were arrested and charged with Ira's murder on December 11, 2008. Neither one of them confessed to killing Ira and denied ever seeing her or touching any of her belongings. Neil took a polygraph test and passed. Mark reportedly offered to take one, but never did. DNA evidence linking Mark and Neil to the crime scene was the key evidence that led to their arrest. But as the investigation continued, there were what some might consider red flags. Shortly after Mark and Neil were arrested, they were issued $1 million secured bonds. But by February 2009, both of their bonds were reduced to $100,000 secured due to Mark and Neil's DNA not being found in several additional tests. With the reduction, Mark and Neil were able to post bond and were placed on house arrest with electronic monitoring. Then, when DNA test results for the ligatures came back and didn't match Mark or Neil, a motion was made to have them removed from house arrest. That request was denied. You may have noticed the title for this episode mentions only one defendant, Mark Carver. What about Neil Cassidy? Nearly two and a half years after Ira's death, Neil was finally scheduled a trial date. However, on October 10, 2010, the day before opening statements were scheduled to begin in his case, he died from a heart attack at home in his kitchen. On an episode of Dateline covering the case, Neil's daughter said the stress of facing life in prison really weighed on her father. In North Carolina, a first-degree murder conviction has one of two outcomes, the death penalty or life in prison without parole. Although a website called freemarkcarver.com was created to argue Mark Carver's innocence, and while a goal of court junkie is to always remain unbiased, the website was instrumental to me in my research for this case. It's where we found Mark's trial transcript, where I'll be pulling quotes from since we couldn't find audio of the trial. The transcript does not include opening statements, closing arguments, or the verdict, but news articles from that time do help fill in the gaps. If you're not already familiar with this case, I'm going to spoil part of the ending now. Mark Carver is found guilty at his trial, but later his conviction is overturned. It's important to tell you that now so you can pay close attention to key moments in the trial and then decide for yourself whether or not Mark is innocent, or whether at the very least, he didn't receive a fair trial. Testimony in Mark's trial began in Gaston County Superior Court on March 15, 2011. 
He was facing charges of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Dennis Lovelace and Brenda Pierce, the jet skiers, took the stand first. Mark was represented by defense attorneys Brent Rochford and David Phillips. Assistant District Attorneys William Stetzer and Stephanie Hamlin prosecuted on behalf of the state, and Superior Court Judge Timothy Kincaid presided on the bench. Both Dennis and Brenda testified that they did not see Mark Carver on the day they discovered Ira's body. The pair recounted what happened that day to the jury, and on redirect, Prosecutor Stetzer asked Dennis if Mark's attorneys had contacted him at any time since Mark was arrested. Dennis said no. You talked to everybody who has called you, he asked. Dennis said yes and added, it surprised me that, I mean, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but it was like three or four days before anybody even called me to ask me any questions besides Danny with the Gazette office. On recross, defense attorney David Phillips asked Dennis if anyone had taken a DNA sample from him. He said no. Previously, Dennis told the court that while he did step one foot off his jet ski onto the riverbank, he did not go any further when he saw something wrapped around Ira's neck. Brenda, on the other hand, did not step onto the riverbank at all that day, she told the court. During cross-examination, Brenda said she didn't talk to police until sometime in October 2008, three months after discovering the body. She also did not give a DNA sample. Once Ira's body was found and identified, investigators spent a significant amount of time learning who Ira Yarmolenko was and what she did on the last day of her life. According to numerous reports, in 1996, Ira and her family immigrated to the United States from Ukraine as refugees when Ira was just eight years old. Her family lived in Greensboro, North Carolina for a while before moving to Carborough, which is near Chapel Hill. In an investigative reporting series from the Charlotte Observer titled Death by the River, Ira's brother fondly describes his sister as kind and adventurous. Ira loved the outdoors and hiking. One of Ira's friends who testified during Mark's trial said she had been planning to go on a hiking trip with her UNC Charlotte friends after finals. It was Ira's last semester at UNC Charlotte. Her plan was to move back to Chapel Hill to be closer to her family. The friend said she was excited. Ira also loved photography, both still and digital. Ira's friend from school said it was possible that Ira went to the Catawba River that day to take pictures of kayakers participating in the Olympic trials as an assignment for the school newspaper and for her photography class. The friend said Ira had asked her how to get to the U.S. National Whitewater Center in Charlotte, which is along the Catawba River about a week before she died. Ira was excited to take pictures of the kayakers, the friend said. Ira's camera was found in her car the day she died. Investigators discovered on the day she died that Ira had been to the bank and stopped by the thrift store Goodwill to drop off some items for donation. The Goodwill employee who helped Ira unload her car was asked to describe her behavior and demeanor 
during Mark's trial. Normal, no stress, nothing like that. Just happy-go-lucky, he said. Some reports say Ira also stopped by the coffee shop she worked at that morning and that she had Wendy's for lunch before heading to the river. North Carolina State Highway Patrolman Daniel Souther said the airbags in Ira's car did not deploy because the car was not on. There was extensive damage to the front, he noted, when he examined the car on June 24, 2008. Trooper Souther was told all the DNA testing was complete when he assessed the vehicle, so he didn't wear gloves. However, that was untrue. During cross-examination, Trooper Souther learned that Ira's car was processed for DNA again several weeks after he conducted his investigation. On day two of testimony, one of the investigators on the case was asked to describe the location Ira's body was found. FreemarkCarver.com describes the scene like this. Ira was found at the bottom of a steep, overgrown embankment off a dirt road near Stowe Family YMCA and Water's Edge, a housing development. To get there from UNC Charlotte, which was about 20 miles away, Ira most likely took Interstate 85 and then got off at the Belmont and Mount Holly exit. When Detective Lloyd Michael Addis for the Mount Holly Police Department arrived on the scene, he saw tire tracks and noticed the area was wooded with high grass. Detective Addis testified that he saw, quote, just the car was resting on a stump just right at the river's edge and just the tire tracks and grass mashed down around the car. The driver's side doors on Ira's car were open. Some reports say Ira's car was in park Others say it was a neutral. By the time Detective Addis made it to the scene, Ira's body had been removed. He told the court he wasn't working that day, but he had been called in to obtain a search warrant for her car. He said he wasn't sure who had touched the car before he arrived. After some evidence was collected, he taped the car up and it was towed to the Belmont Police Department. Several agencies had responded to the scene, and they were working it together. In the days that followed, Detective Addis canvassed the nearby neighborhood and construction site. He also paid Mark a visit. When asked by the prosecution how Mark appeared, Detective Addis said he was, like, uninterested. Quote, he didn't want to talk about that girl. He wanted to talk about everything else. Mark told Detective Addis he and his cousin arrived at the Catawba River at around 11.30 in the morning that day. He said he saw two people on jet skis and another man fishing. He heard the lady on the jet ski say the F word and heard the man on the jet ski tell the other man in a boat to call 911. Detective Addis said Mark was fishing within a two to three minute walk from the crime scene. During their investigation, he and another detective went down to the fishing spot and the crime scene and split up to see if they could hear each other from each spot. Detective Addis said they could. Mark consistently told investigators he did not hear Ira's car crash or hear Ira herself at all. Criminal investigator William Terry from the Mount Holly Police Department was one of the first officers on the scene. He said he saw Mark that day while he was loading his fishing poles back in his car. 
Investigator Terry also saw Ira. Her body was lying about five feet from the car. She was laying on her back with three things wrapped around her neck. Her body was wet. Her clothing was wet. It appeared that her hair was wet also, he said. The ligatures, a blue ribbon, a drawstring, and bungee cord were sourced to items Ira already owned, he said. The drawstring came from a hoodie. The bungee cord was similar to others found in her car. And the blue ribbon had been roughly cut from a white bag with red, blue, and yellow flowers found in Ira's car. Investigator Terry said Ira's head was back towards the embankment and her feet were near the river underneath some brush. She was also holding some brush in her hand. A search of Ira's car also uncovered a 35-millimeter film camera. The counter on the camera showed two photos had been taken, but there was no film inside. One of the theories for a motive the prosecution suggested was that Ira had taken photos of something Mark and Neil didn't want anyone to see. When it came time to discuss the taped interviews Mark had with investigators, Mark's defense team made a motion to have the interviews thrown out. They said since the prosecution did not plan to call the other investigator who conducted the interview to the stand, it wouldn't be fair to show the videos in court. Mark had a right to cross-examine anyone who testifies against him, his defense team argued. Judge Kincaid agreed not to allow the taped interviews to be shown in court, but he said investigator Terry could testify about certain portions of the interviews. Mark had two taped interviews with investigators, and each were about an hour long, one on December 10, 2008, and another on December 12, 2008 after he was arrested. ADA Hamlin asked Investigator Terry, and during those interviews, approximately how many times did Mr. Carver deny hearing or seeing the victim? Investigator Terry replied, dozens. North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations agent David Frank Crow and Investigator Terry conducted the second interview with Mark. Even after his arrest, Mark continued to deny killing Ira or even seeing her. At some point during the interrogation, they told Mark his DNA was found on her car. He said he didn't know why it was there. He couldn't explain it, Investigator Terry testified. In a Charlotte Observer article, a few jurors from the trial said this next part of Investigator Terry's testimony was a major factor in their guilty verdicts. Investigator Terry said that despite Mark saying he never saw Ira, he was able to describe her. Quote, Mark said that she was, I believe the words he used, is a little thing or a little girl. He described her as being little, and he said that she came up to him about right here. He demonstrated how Mark had stood up and had showed him and Agent Crow how tall Ira would be next to him. Investigator Terry said Mark then followed that up with, I guess I've never seen her. During cross-examination, Mark's attorney, Brent Ratchford, asked Investigator Terry what else happened when Mark stood up and described Ira's height. Quote, And Mr. Carver also said during that interview when he was instructed by Agent Crow to stand up and show how tall Ms. Yarmolenko was that, I guess I saw it on TV, he asked. Investigator Terry replied, 
I believe so. Yes, sir. During cross-examination, it was also revealed that there were two other people fishing at that same spot as Mark and Neil that day. Those men also gave their DNA. Ira's ex-boyfriends and roommates were also interviewed, but were cleared as suspects, Investigator Terry said. He told the jury he did not talk to any construction workers, and he attempted to talk to residents in the nearby neighborhood, but was unsuccessful. Rochford asked, Would it be fair to say that you were investigating a theory that she was abducted from UNC or the area? Investigator Terry answered, We were investigating all types of scenarios, abduction in the beginning, and then also murder there, homicide there. When asked if there was any evidence that Mark had placed the ligatures around Ira's neck, Investigator Terry said no. Next up to the stand was Detective Jim Workman for the Gaston County Police Department. He processed the latent fingerprints found on the scene. Detective Workman told the jury latent prints are invisible to the eye, so powders or other chemicals are used to bring them to the surface, and then they're collected and analyzed. Thirteen prints were lifted from the exterior of Ira's car. None of them were viable. Detective Workman said that wasn't unusual. None of the prints inside Ira's car were viable either, he said. Detective Workman's testimony concluded day two. We'll get into day three right after this quick break from today's sponsor. Own iconic luxury items at unreal values with The Real Real the leading reseller of authenticated luxury consignment from top designers. Shop from designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Rolex, Cartier, and hundreds more at up to 90% off retail. New arrivals come in daily and every single item is 100% expert authenticated by the Real Reels team of experts. Shop and consign women's and men's luxury fashion as well as fine jewelry, watches, art, and home. Shop online, visit one of their original stores in Soho or West Hollywood, or their newest location at 870 Madison Avenue in New York. You may also visit one of their luxury consignment offices in Chicago, Dallas, Miami, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. In-store new customers receive an automatic $25 off at checkout. I love The Real Real. I'm constantly scrolling through their app, even if I'm not looking to buy anything in particular. Just scrolling through all the new items that come in daily is so much fun. I just found a pair of sunglasses I'm going to snag, probably right after I record this episode. Shop in-store, online, or download the app and get 20% off select items with the promo code REAL. That's therealreal.com, promo code REAL for 20% off select items. On day three, prosecutors presented evidence to the jury that Mark's DNA was found on Ira's car. Now, there are different types of DNA. Forensic biologist Kristen Hughes for the SBI testified, quote, when it comes to touch DNA, that's not the ideal source for DNA. In forensic DNA casework, ideally the best potential sources for DNA are going to be body fluids, such as semen, saliva, or blood. Touch DNA is exactly what it sounds like. It sheds skin cells from a person, but they're not the best source of DNA. 
In Mark Carver's case, the prosecution said that Mark touched Ira's car and there were enough skin cells left behind for a forensic scientist to find his DNA. SBI forensic scientist Karen Winningham testified that Mark's touch DNA was found on the pillar on the driver's side of the rear door of Ira's car. Neil's touch DNA was found on the front passenger door. However, neither Mark nor Neil's DNA were found on the ligatures. Ira's DNA was found on the drawstring, ribbon, and could not be ruled out on the bungee cord, Winningham testified. Prosecutors had presented evidence that Ira was wet when her body was found. If that were the case, is it possible that any touch DNA left behind on Ira by Mark and Neil could have been washed off? Forensic biologist Hughes said that was possible at trial. Ultimately, the prosecution argued that just because Mark's DNA was not found on the ligatures doesn't mean he didn't place them around Ira's neck. Forensic pathologist Dr. Chris Wynn testified that the drawstring had been wrapped around Ira's neck twice, very tightly. It had been knotted multiple times on the front side of her neck. Dr. Wynn said, quote, The second ligature was a length of blue ribbon-like material that had frayed ends on either end, and that was also tied around the neck relatively tightly and was knotted on the front. And the final third ligature was a length of dark blue bungee cord, which had black hooks on either end. That was also wrapped tightly multiple times around the victim's neck, and the hooks were hooked on the back of her neck. Dr. Wynn said the ligatures were tight enough to cause indentations in the skin. Soft tissue hemorrhaging and blistering was also present. Could Ira have placed the ligatures around her neck herself? Dr. Wynn said the first ligature was so tight that it would have caused her to pass out. There was so much pressure put on her neck that it caused hemorrhaging in her eyes. He testified, I believe the victim died secondary to asphyxia, which was caused by ligature strangulation. He ruled her manner of death a homicide and stood by that assessment on the stand. During the autopsy, Dr. Wynn also viewed a photo of Ira's body that was taken at the crime scene. He told the court that what struck him the most, aside from the ligatures, was the overall positioning of Ira's body. Quote, as you can see in this picture, her legs are underneath the brush. This leg is also partially covered by brush. She appears to be grasping onto some of those grass blades or branches and just the abnormal way that her legs are laying. Her left leg is sort of bent at an angle that way. He said that for this to have been anything but a homicide, i.e. a suicide, she would have had to tie three ligatures around her neck tightly and get into that position before she died. He said that was not consistent with what the photo showed. During cross-examination, Dr. Wynn confirmed that it was possible that Ira could have passed out, came to, and passed out again. He believes the drawstring was placed first, then the ribbon, then the bungee cord. Ira had no apparent defensive wounds, other than a small laceration on the index finger of her right hand. She had no claw marks or fingernail marks, and her fingernails were intact. He also reconfirmed to the court that there was no evidence of sexual assault. After Dr. Wynn's testimony, 
the state rested their case. After the state rested their case, the jury was asked to leave the courtroom as the defense made a motion to have the murder and conspiracy to commit murder charges dropped due to lack of evidence. As we know, the burden of proof is on the state. It's up to the state to prove someone is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Mark's attorney, David Phillips, argued that the state did not prove Mark had conspired to commit murder and alluded people other than Mark had access to ERA. He said the only evidence in the light most favorable to the state was at best that he touched the car. But he said there was no evidence that any violence took place by Mark or by Neil and that there was no conspiracy whatsoever. He also argued that there was no connection to Mark and the murder weapon since his DNA was not found on any of the ligatures. He argued that even if the state was trying to say that the DNA had washed off at some point, he pointed out that Ira's DNA hadn't washed off and was still found on the bungee cord, the ribbon, and the drawstring. ADA Stetzer argued in response that Mark's DNA on the car puts him in incredibly close proximity to a recently murdered girl and that he then did the equivalent of flight, which shows consciousness of guilt. Quote, Now, Mr. Phillips says, well, maybe he touched the car looking for something or was stealing something. If that was the case, then what we have is the verbal equivalent of flight that took place over six months where he lied to the police over and over and over about it. As for the fact that Ira's DNA was on the ligatures and not Mark's nor Neil's, he said the state contends that Mark put her in the river at one point and the DNA washed off. Judge Kincaid agreed with the defense when it came to the conspiracy to commit murder charge, so it was dropped. However, he denied the motion to drop the murder charge. Judge Kincaid asked if the defense planned to call any witnesses. They said no, and that they planned on resting their case when the jury came back into the courtroom. The judge asked Mark if he was sure that he understood that decision and that he had the right to call his own witnesses and to testify or not to testify at his own trial. Mark told the judge he understood. Then the jury was called back into the courtroom and the defense rested their case. Closing arguments were held on day four of the trial on March 18th, 2011. Those were not included in the trial transcript but a news article from a Charlotte TV news station, WBTV, provides some insights. Mark's attorney, David Phillips, argued that Mark did not kill Ira. The law is the law. Follow the law, he said. Mark was still there when the police came. If a person killed somebody, why wouldn't they run away? Phillips suggested that Ira may have committed suicide because the ribbon was tied in a bow around her neck and because there were no scratch marks on her neck to indicate that she tried to remove the ligatures. Phillips also reminded the jurors that Mark's DNA was not found on her body. For the prosecution, Bill Stetzer said the DNA on Ira's car proved that Mark and his cousin Neil were on the opposite sides of Ira's car and had tried to push her car into the river. What would drive Mark and Neil to kill Ira, he asked? 
Stetzer theorized that Ira took a photo of the two men that they didn't want anyone to see. Stetzer also told the jury that the men tried to throw Ira in the river, and when she didn't sink, they pulled her back out. That's why their DNA was not found in the ligatures. The water had washed it off. When it came time to deliberate, the jury had three verdict options. First-degree murder, second-degree murder, or not guilty. The jury began their deliberations on a Friday afternoon, recessed for the weekend, and returned a verdict by mid-Monday morning on March 21st, 2011. A jury of five men and seven women found Mark guilty of first-degree murder. Mark was sentenced to life in prison without parole, which is the mandatory minimum sentence for first-degree murder in North Carolina. Several reports say that Mark was silent as his verdict was read, while his family sobbed. Ira's family was reportedly overjoyed. Her brother thanked the jury and the prosecution for their work. The Charlotte Observer quotes Ira's brother as saying, As for Mark Carver, I don't know what to say. It's hard for us to go on like this, all thanks to you and your cousin. Nearly a week after the verdict, Mark's attorneys filed a motion to have the jury's verdict overturned, and they listed six reasons why he was innocent. Judge Kincaid denied the motion. The verdict in this case received mixed reactions. It seemed as though one half believed Mark and Neil killed Ira, and they were ecstatic that Mark would now be spending the rest of his life behind bars. But the other half believed that Mark was innocent, which would mean that Ira's killer is still out there. Mark then began the lengthy appeals process. First up was the North Carolina Court of Appeals. In 2012, two out of the three judges upheld his conviction. In his dissent, Judge Robert Hunter Jr. wrote about his concerns with the use of touch DNA in the case. Quote, The state's second expert on touch DNA testified at trial that touch DNA testing is a relatively new technique, and it's not as reliable as saliva and blood DNA testing. The expert also described a phenomenon known as secondary skin cell transfers, where if person A touches person B and person B touches a pen, person A's DNA can be found on the pen. Justice Hunter's dissent also referenced investigative errors. The next step was to appeal to the Supreme Court of North Carolina. On January 13, 2013, the Supreme Court of North Carolina also upheld Mark's conviction. Several months later, however, the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence got wind of Mark's case. Mark's case was actually the first uh, North Carolina case involving a DNA DNA mixture. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why the case got a lot of attention. One was just because of Vera Yamerlinka being a young, beautiful student, and she's a victim that, that gets a lot of attention. And then the fact that it was a mixture case is what uh, intrigued us. We had some, when the national uh, guidelines for interpretation of DNA mixtures came out in 2010, actually got a lot of attention from the defense bar. So it was an issue we were kind of tracking. 
And so we were waiting, and then Dateline came out with a story on Mark's case, and then we were waiting for the appeal to be final. And it was interesting when the appeal decision came down from the Court of Appeals, you know, the primary issue for, uh, for concern for the dissenting judge, Judge um, Hunter, was the DNA mixture uh, and the fact that that science was not well-established. Chris Mumma, the center's executive director, reached out to Mark and requested that he apply to have them take on his case. There were a lot of things that stood out um, from Mark's case, but that is what triggered us to send him an application. After the appeal was final, we sent him an application and uh, left it up to him on whether he wanted to apply or not. Uh, He got some help from his brother and sister-in-law in in filling out that application and, and sent it back pretty immediately. Unlike other organizations that focus on wrongful convictions, Chris and her team focus on actual innocence. So there always has to be some type of new evidence that wasn't heard by a judge or a jury. There could be just legal issues, and if there's just legal issues without a credible claim of innocence, we'll refer them to another agency. So there has to be there could be legal issues on top of the innocence claim. But we're always looking for new evidence that's not been considered before. In 2016, Chris and her team filed a motion for appropriate relief on Mark's behalf. And in a new courtroom, they would do something that Mark's trial attorneys never did. They would present a defense. In their motion for appropriate relief, Mark's new attorneys claimed two things— One, that Mark was denied effective assistance of counsel as a guaranteed right under the Sixth Amendment. And two, that Mark is actually innocent and is entitled to relief pursuant to the Eighth Amendment. In the motion, they argued that Mark's original attorneys did not properly represent him. If they had, the jury would have heard testimony from forensic experts they would have learned that the DNA evidence was too weak to even link Mark to the crime scene. More on that in a second. Mark told his trial attorneys that he didn't touch the car. He was adamant about that. But the attorneys believed that his DNA was found on the car, and so they asked the experts if it was possible that his DNA had been transferred there by the officers working the case, and the experts said it was possible. But in their opening statements and closing arguments, Mark's attorneys essentially seemed to even abandon that theory. They told the jury, so what if he touched the car? It doesn't mean he killed her. Meaning that they conceded that he did touch the car, even though Mark told them he didn't. Interestingly, the defense attorneys requested that, uh, or did not request that their opening and closing uh, arguments be transcribed. So the fact that they admitted he touched the car was not picked up until we got the files and could see some of the notes from the files. But aside from that, Chris and her team believed that they could prove that Mark's DNA wasn't on the car at all. And the science, it appeared, would back them up. When we got the backup for the DNA and got our DNA experts to apply the correct scientific standards for interpreting that DNA. They, they said if the state lab had adopted the mixture interpretation guidelines that were issued in 2010, 
Mark Carver would have been excluded as being part of that DNA. So that was another twist to it. The FBI issued DNA mixture interpretation guidelines in 2010. North Carolina State Lab did not adopt those until 2013, even though a majority of the country had adopted them. So had Mark's case been in some state that adopted the guidelines or run through the FBI, he would never have even gone to trial. In their brief, Chris and her team reveal that Mark has a low IQ and reads on a first grade reading level. During the investigation, one of the detectives had to write Mark's written statement for him because Mark is illiterate. Mark also has severe carpal tunnel and tendinitis in his arms, the brief says. He had been disabled due to these conditions since 1998. One doctor even noted Mark was, quote, severely disabled and couldn't hold the doctor's pen without dropping it. Jurors told news outlets in 2011 that Detective Terry's testimony, where he described Mark telling investigators how tall Ira was, was a key factor in finding Mark guilty. They said the DNA evidence was also crucial. We've heard that there were two factors. One was the DNA and the other was the height issue. You know, so, so you had proximity. You know, you have the, the vehicle and the victim found and then Mark is fishing in the proximity. And whenever you have proximity, that becomes an easy fallback for law enforcement on solving a crime. And we've seen it in several of our cases. So you had proximity, you had um, the supposed DNA, and then you had this, the height issue, which is where they said he knew how tall she was up next to him. And, th- and that's basically how it was presented as trial by the law enforcement officers that he knew her height. But that's a slightly a misrepresentation, to be kind. What actually happened during the interview was the officer said to Mark, how tall was she? And Mark said, I, I don't know. And he said, well, you know, she was a little bitty thing, right? Mark said, I don't know. And the officer said, well, she would have come to about right here on you, right? And he puts his hand up. The officer puts his hand up on his, on his forehead. And, and Mark says, I guess so. And then the officer says, well, you, you stand up and show me. And, and Mark mimics him. He mimics exactly what the officer has just done. But at trial, that is presented as Mark knowing her height. Remember, the video of that interrogation was not played for the jurors at the defense's request. But Chris and her team argued in their brief that if they had seen it, the jury would have seen the SBI agent refer to Ira as a little girl multiple times, and that it was the SBI agent who first stood to show Mark how tall Ira was. Clips of Mark's interrogation can now be found on YouTube and are considered public record. Here's the audio of that moment that was only described during trial. Here, SBI agent Crow is asking Mark about Ira. If y'all if y'all were standing up looking at each other eyes, if she be looking you in the eyes, yeah, show me, stand up, show me about how tall she was on you. Agent Crow holds his hand up, indicating a height and then tells Mark to stand up and show him. Mark then puts his hand up at the same height Agent Crow just did. Probably about, about right there. Okay. I guess. And I don't know. At the end, Mark says, I guess. I mean, I don't know. 
The brief argues that Mark was just copying what Agent Crow told him. So when we look at the case and we see the DNA mixture, we see the lack of motive, the reliance on proximity, the issues with his mental and physical disabilities, his continuing denials, the fact that his cousin uh, Neil and he never turned on each other. Even after Neil died, it would have been very easy for Mark to say, yeah, this is what happened. It was you know, it was Neil, but they never turned on each other, even though they were threatened. Their DNA was not on the murder weapons. Uh, there, there was, they claimed there was DNA in the car, but it was a very, very limited spot. So you, you would have had to have been a, uh, you know, kind of a, a real expert criminal to get away with this without leaving evidence behind. And um, Neil and, and Mark were not expert criminals. In January 2017, a month after the motion for appropriate relief was filed, a judge granted Mark an evidentiary hearing. I was pretty, we were pretty confident that the evidence was, the issues were strong and the evidence was clear. So we were not very surprised when we, when we were granted the hearing. Chris then filed more post-conviction motions to preserve and produce evidence in the case. At one point, she filed a motion to have Gaston County District Attorney Locke Bell held in contempt of court for failing to meet a deadline to turn over discovery. The motion was dismissed when Bell satisfied the discovery requirements right before the hearing. I absolutely felt like we were being... I mean, the prosecutor actually said on video with a, with a reporter, he said, why should I help her? And that's exactly what he said to me on the phone. Why would I help you? And then the defense attorney was stonewalling to an extent also. He gave his files to the prosecution before he gave them to us. So it was it was a tough case. On April 2nd, 2019, the evidentiary hearing began. On day three, the Charlotte Observer reported that one of the jurors signed an affidavit recanting his guilty vote. That affidavit was not allowed to be used in the hearing. During the hearing, which concluded on April 12th, a judge from Union County heard about the evidence that was never presented during Mark's trial. So we presented a, quite a bit of evidence. Um, we presented her computer and the fact that there were some things on her computer that were not followed up with. We put on, let's see, two two DNA experts. Um, We put the actual video in to to address the height issue. We put on witnesses who knew exactly, there was a claim that there was, uh, Mark had said there was construction going on at the time he was at the river. And so he thought it was the trucks grading the road. And the prosecution had presented that that the construction was a long way away and and Mark could not possibly have heard it. So we put on witnesses who said the construction was right there by the river that day at that time and also put on witnesses that had conducted the shouting test. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's basically where you go where the victim was and then you go where Mark was and you shout from one person to another and see if you can hear each other. And the prosecution presented that you could hear everything from one point to the other. And that was presented by law enforcement at trial. We went out there and we couldn't hear anything. And 
we actually put witnesses on who had conducted that test with prosecution prior to the trial. And so we put on evidence that they actually knew you couldn't hear anything at the time of trial. We put on, you know, error, presented the errors in the, investigated, in the investigation, the lack of control over the crime scene, the lack of interviews of critical witnesses. There was a black ski mask that was found in the woods at the time, the, the time of the murder. And then it just kind of disappeared, like, like you find black ski masks. Uh, near the river all the time. So we we put on, uh, I, I think we put on a very strong case. We we put on, you know, closing argument for the prosecution focused on the fact that they said she was soaking wet and presented that Neil and Mark had dragged her into the water and that's how their DNA was, was washed off of the ligatures. And only her DNA was on the three ligatures that were around her neck. So they claimed that she was dragged in the water and the river washed off their DNA. Well, in actuality, there was not one police report that said she was wet. Not one police report. And there were 25 officers at the crime scene and no one said she was wet. And there had been DNA testing on the ligatures for male DNA, and there was male DNA on the ligatures that did not match Mark or Neil, and that was never presented to the jury. Judge Christopher Bragg also learned of Mark's mental and physical limitations. So he had carpal and radial tunnel syndrome, so sometimes people just refer to the carpal, but it wasn't just carpal. He had radial tunnel on both arms. He had had surgery on both arms, and the doctors were considering doing surgery again. So it wasn't just this past problem. It was something that he has had the attorneys obtained his medical records. They would have seen the doctors were considering second surgery because of his limitations in and uh, holding things for very long. You know, there was a big deal made by the prosecution that he could he could catch a fish, but he would catch put the poles on the ground, the fish would get caught on the line. He would slowly try and reel it in. And most of it was done by keeping it on the ground. He might hold it up for a minute to take a picture, but there was no prolonged, he had no prolonged ability to exert strength. It would have taken a long and powerful, it was a long and powerful struggle that the murder, the way Ira was murdered. So the medical issue the very morning of the murder, he went to the doctor and complained about his weight, how overweight he was, and how difficult he was having difficulty breathing, and he couldn't walk very far. So that was that very morning. So, you know, it was interesting the way things were are presented. That, you know, the prosecution at the evidentiary hearing claimed that he could complete complex banking transactions based on the fact that he played Monopoly in prison. And um, if you look at the Monopoly game, it's for ages eight and up, yet the prosecution could, you know, kind of just present that in a different way. Mark even testified for two hours, recounting to the judge what happened the day of May 5th, 2008. 
His recollection of events 11 years later didn't exactly match statements he made to police in 2008, but his claims of innocence remained. He told the court he never saw Ira that day, and he did not touch her or her car. Mark said the written statement police wrote for him included things he had never said, but he didn't realize that when he signed the statement because he has trouble reading. Multiple IQ tests confirmed that Mark has a low IQ, and one expert testified that he does have an intellectual disability. The hearing lasted nine days, and when it ended, the judge said it would take him several weeks to form his opinion. On June 5, 2019, Judge Bragg announced his decision. He granted Mark a new trial based on ineffective assistance of counsel and issues with the DNA evidence. So when Mark heard it, he didn't understand. He didn't understand what the judge was saying. They took him back into the cell, and then uh, Cheryl Sullivan, my co-counsel, and I went back there to talk to him, and he said, what, ha- what happened? I don't understand. And he just, he just wanted to go home. You know, I think he was disappointed that he wasn't going to be able to go home. The judge was not issuing the order. Even then, he, he did an oral order from the bench, and, and Mark had to go back to prison to wait for the written order. So he was just, uh, he didn't really understand what was going on and just wanted to go home. We were relieved that the case was overturned. We did think that we presented uh, sufficient evidence of prosecutorial misconduct, and we thought that that uh, should have been granted as part of the relief or found as part of the relief. And the judge was under the impression that under the law, he could not say that Mark was innocent, and I, I disagree with his interpretation of that issue, but he's the judge. Immediately, District Attorney Locke Bell told reporters he planned on appealing the ruling and retrying the case if necessary. Mark was issued a $100,000 secure bond. A North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence board member posted Mark's bond, And on June 11, 2019, he was released from prison on the condition he adhered to electronic monitoring and not leave the state of North Carolina. Mark's family and his attorney, Chris Mumma, along with an army of reporters, were there to greet him when he was released. After putting on a North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence t-shirt, Mark told reporters that prison was tough and he was happy to be out and that he's innocent. The first thing he said he was going to do was visit his grandbaby. Chris said she doesn't believe the state has the evidence to pursue another trial against Mark. I think the uh, state has said they will try retry him. Um, I do not think they will be able to retry him because there is no evidence. Everything has been discredited. So I think this is just going you know, all, all this accomplishes is dragging it out for Mark and his family and the community and Ira's family. And we're going to get to the right place in the end, but it's going to take a lot longer than it should. District Attorney Locke Bell is appealing the order for a retrial. And so that is currently making its way through the system. At this point, District Attorney Locke Bell is still insisting that Mark Carver is guilty. and. 
that the judge got it wrong and we've got it wrong and the science has got it wrong. And so uh, I don't know that he'll, uh, he'll ever be able to get past his tunnel vision and bias to see the truth in this case. Meanwhile, Mark is out on house arrest, but he remains charged with Ira's murder. I asked Chris if she has anything else to add, and she said we shouldn't forget about Neil in all of this. You know, Neil was a victim of all this too because um, I believe it was the stress of these charges that killed him. And, you know, he died the night before his trial uh, because of the stress. So I think he is just as innocent as Mark. I'll just state for the record, as I've stated before, I believe Mark Carver is 100% actually innocent. And that's all for this episode. This episode was researched and written by Jordan Hensley, with some additions added by myself, Jillian Jalali. A special thanks to Chris Mumma from the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence for talking with me about this case. To learn more about her organization, and for those of you who would like to learn more about helping, go to nccai.org. Also a special thank you to freemarkcarver.com as well. As always, I'd love to know what you think about this case. Do you think Mark Carver is actually innocent? Do you think he received a fair trial? Let me know by joining the conversation on Instagram at Court Junkie, by tweeting me at Court Junkie Pod, or by emailing me at podcast at courtjunkie.com. I'll be posting more of my conversation with Chris Mama on Patreon for my $10 a month patrons. We talk more about how she was up against not only the prosecutors, but Mark's original trial attorneys, what her theory of the case is, what's next for Mark, and more about prosecutorial misconduct she believes occurred in the trial. To become a Patreon supporter, just go to courtjunkie.com slash support. I now have many tiers available with various perks. For $10 a month, you get additional content, a monthly bonus episode, Court Junkie stickers, and a button. And I also have additional bonus content I'll be adding within the next month or so. Then for $6 a month, you get a monthly bonus episode. And for all levels, including a $3 a month tier, you get access to all of my episodes ad-free. And lastly, a very dear friend of mine was recently diagnosed with MS and is currently hosting an acoustic benefit concert in Chicago called MS Sucks, Fighting for a Cure. The show will be at the Bottom Lounge on December 21st, and there are going to be some really great acts there, including Lucky Boy's Confusion, AM Taxi, and The Plain White Tees. For more information on the show or to donate to the Accelerated Cure Project, go to acceleratedcure.org. I'll include a link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.